Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theodore Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? All right, thank you. Yeah, okay. The sun is shining. It's cold, but the flowers are really making a go of it nonetheless. Um, tell us what's happening in your your patch of earth. Uh, what's happening mostly is rhubarb. Yes. I thought it had all died. Representing um, Yorkshire here. Yes. <laughs> so a, bit, a bit late, really, for uh, the, the, the best stuff from the um, Yorkshire Triangle has already happened, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought ours had all died, and it's just wonderfully come back to life. I've even got a giant rhubarb, which you mustn't eat, which I thought had died. Uh, and I just saw a little tiny green bud the other day. So uh, I luckily, I didn't put it in the compost and it, it lives to fight another day. Is it true that thing, it's probably an old wives' tale um, or an old man's tale, if you like, um, that you're not supposed to eat rhubarb in the first year that it comes up. Is that true? Don't know. I mean, it sounds quite sensible because you have to let it establish itself. No, it was for poison reasons. Well, it is very, It is pretty poisonous. Like the leaves of normal rhubarb, I'm pretty, I think, are poisonous. And the, the one I'm talking about, the giant one, the gunnero, is, is, is really poisonous. So that may well be true. Maybe it has to like get it out of its system. What a dangerous life you lead, Lucy Dallas. <laughs> on the edge. Very much on the edge. <laughs> right. Um, now, uh, moving on, um, there are a couple of strong... Shakespeare pieces in this week's issue of the TLS which is usual for this time of the year it being his birth and death month and we have a brilliant commentary by Peter K Anderson which begins Queen Elizabeth employed numerous court jesters during her long reign but there is only one who was mentioned by Shakespeare mentioned twice in fact which is quite a claim for anyone but for any jester Uh, and this is a man called Monaco Lisa, do you want to tell us about Monaco? Well, I can, yes, the, the amazing stuff that Peter K. Anderson tells us. that. So he is mentioned in these two plays and uh, it wasn't very clear whether this was a real person or not. But he's been doing some digging and found reference to him by the wonderfully named Thomas Churchyard, 
who he says was one of the more colourful poets of the Elizabethan era. They were all, I mean, I thought quite a lot of them were quite colourful. So <laughs> he was a soldier of fortune and a servant, and he did uh, autobiographical poems as well. And he wrote a sort of elegy to Monaco. Yeah, he has. So he it says he has fantastical notions of himself and he was an Italian jester and his name eventually, um, or quite quickly, in fact, he, had, he was so renowned that his name quite quickly became a, a kind of byword for a type of individual, a foppish, self-important madman from a Catholic country. And that's sort of like how he's presented to us, this Monaco, who is the model, apparently, for Don Armado in, in Love's Labour's Lost. So that's that's where he appears the first time in Shakespeare and then again in All's Well that ends well. But it ends up being quite a kind of a, well, it is a, it's a very deeply excavated, can't be a biography of Monaco because we just don't know enough about him. But I mean, we come out knowing a lot more about him than you would expect. It does. It paints a picture of him, this this poem by Thomas Churchill, and calls him a, a, a poor old man, mm. which, as, as Anderson says, it sort of changes your opinion of him because then you think, oh, that's actually... That's not maybe as funny as you might have thought. And also the sad clown thing, which is related, isn't it? The, the, the depth and the sadness behind this figure of fun. Yes, exactly. I'm, my, I, I'm struggling with this because I'm also uh, reading alongside, as I quite often do, I'm reading um, Terry Pratchett. And he has in Discworld, his alternative um, universe, he has a fool's guild, which is for clowns and jesters. And it's the most appallingly sad, (laughs) terrible, terrible place, much worse than the Assassin's Guild, which is quite jolly. The fool's guild is like the worst one to be in. And they're all just so miserable and it's so unfunny and cutthroat. You wouldn't believe it. Anyway, that's a digression. That's nothing to do with Monaco, who was real. But you think that he would be an honorary member, basically, is what you're saying? I think he might be because of this, as I say, rather bittersweet portrait of this real person. It also says that, you know, people laughed at him in the street. And no, nowhere is it written down that he was an official jester. So the, the question mark is whether he was actually just a man who people poked fun at and had, you know, had a great time over rather than with. Yes, or whether he assumed this position and actually was very witty within this position and had quite a lot of, he obviously met quite a lot of um, powerful or, or um, you know, some of the movers and shakers have made an impression on them. So it could it, it's, there's a huge gamut of possibilities, isn't there? Mm. He could perhaps have been this very wise figure who was putting things on, or he could have been just an, an absolute figure of fun, as you say, that everyone was laughing at mm. rather than with. Well, it's, um, it's a fascinating piece, so um, I recommend it to everyone. Um, coming up on this week's show... This year marks 200 years since the birth of Charles Baudelaire and Beverly B. Brahic, a poet and translator of Baudelaire and plenty of others, will join us to celebrate him and read a poem or two. Plus, Lucy and I will make a selection, a piece each, from this week's pages to tell you about. For my part, I can promise the poet Charlotte Mew, reviewed by Andrew Motion. For Lucy's selection, we shall have to wait and see, which is to say I don't know. But before all that, we're joined by Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, Oxford, to discuss the new Arden edition of Measure for Measure, one of the so-called problem plays. What problems does the Arden 3 edition solve and what problems of its own might it create? Emma Smith is on the line now to guide us. Hello, Emma. Hi, Fia. Um, It would, I think, be worth just sort of before we wade in, sketching the Arden project out a little bit for us. It began in 1899, didn't it, with the first Arden series, Arden 1, and now we're on Arden 3. What What is the project? How does it uh, explain itself? Well, that's a really great question. So we've got, you know, 
130 years or so of editorial labour, uh, going back, as you say, to the Arden One series, began in 1899 with an edition of Hamlet and finished the, the complete series of plays as they understood them by the mid-1920s. And then the Arden Two, which many listeners might be uh, familiar with, they did great service as, as school texts for people of my vintage with those um, ruralists illustrations on which I uh, talk about a little bit in the in the review. That's a series which went from the 50s, 1950s to the 80s. And then Arden Three, which finishes the series uh, of Arden Three, which began in 1995. So it's been, it's, it's, it's stretched over an extraordinary period in, in intellectual life, in ideas about texts, you know, through modernism and postmodernism and the digital and all those uh, textual and sort of wider socio-political and literary ideas about what, what editing a text uh, should be. And we can see that, you know, stepping through these different series. And so, I mean, the, the arrival of this book then, the Arden Three uh, edition of Measure for Measures, you say it's the last one in the series. This is a, a major event. It's a really major event. It's been an, a major event of textual scholarship, collaborative scholarship over the last nearly 30 years. It's given us a, a, a different canon with some additional works uh, newly or reasonably newly attributed to Shakespeare. So it's participating in some of those uh, still ongoing debates about the shape of Shakespeare's work and how we should understand that for the 21st century. Um, and as you, as you say, as you, you suggested, uh, that the Arden too has a place in the hearts of many people who went to school uh, in a certain period. Lucy, do you do you remember them from that? Because they're not they're not part of my. You're asking me to uh, give away my great age. I think <laughs> I think I do because also um, because the ones you got in in school and um, and later on they're always a bit battered, weren't they? So you're always a bit behind the ones we got. The thing that I wonder about them, I mean, of course they're absolutely wonderful works of scholarship but do you think Emma there is ever any because sometimes it is the first time you um meet these plays you know you meet you meet them in school and you're reading them do you think whether there's a, a danger of the notes overwhelming the text sometimes for, for students that what you get is you know five lines of of actual text and then a huge slew of notes. I completely agree. I think these are not texts for reading and they're not texts for beginners. I think beginners need less annotation rather than more because the more annotation you get, the more you realise you don't know. And one of the difficulties about Shakespearean glossing is it tends to flatten out the sort of level of difficulty, let's say, of different kinds of annotation. So some things may be just completely ordinary words that we have lost. And so pretty much everybody in the audience would have had those words as part of their vocabulary. And, and, and we as modern users of modern English need a bit of help with that. But some of the allusions and, and, uh, and other things, you know, nobody would have ever got. And by putting them all in the same place at the foot of the page, I think you can give people a feeling that they can never understand this and it's a, it's kind of hopeless uh, even trying. Because mm, otherwise you get the impression that it's terribly difficult, whereas actually if you just sit and read it, especially if you read aloud, it often just makes much more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and if you let yourself not understand certain things but get the gist of it, there's not much sense of the gist in an Arden edition. You know, everything is is explored and that makes them, yeah, completely extraordinary works of reference but they're not necessarily good text for performance, for example, because you have to keep turning the page. Uh, you don't get many lines of, of actual dialogue. So they've got their limitations. And although they do have a place in the, in the school classroom, I think perhaps Arden Three has 
moved its its target audience a little bit more towards the university seminar room and away from school level uh, Shakespeare studies. And I mean, on, on that point there of footnoting what a particular word might mean or, uh, or how it might have changed, um, your review starts with an apparently small but very telling detail, doesn't it, which leads us into the main body of your um, review essay. You refer to it as a microcosm for changing attitudes to the work of the Shakespearean editor. Um, can you tell us about this word and how it's been dealt with in the past and, and how Arden 3 sort of does or doesn't engage with that type of editing? Yeah, so Measure for Measure is a, a first folio only play, so it's not published until 1623. That means that we've got early, only one early witness to take account of. And in the scene when Isabella and Claudio are discussing in prison the terrible bargain that Angelo has proposed, that if he has sex with Isabella, he will free uh, her brother Claudio from prison. They describe Angelo twice with this word uh, that doesn't appear anywhere else in Shakespeare and nobody really knows what it means. It's prenzy, P-R-E-N-Z-I-E. And it's absolutely true that for earlier editors, I mean, right through from uh, the great 18th century sort of heyday of uh, editorial back and forth, People have loved to try to work out what either what this word means or to amend it to a, to a different word uh, and to make sense of that in some way. And one of the reasons I wanted to start the, the uh, review for the TLS with that is that the TLS has been one of the major sites where this kind of uh, work has been done. Uh, and I'm really hoping to revive it a bit with this review. I'm hoping there's going to be a whole lot of letters about about Prenzy. And we're, we're going to put a bit. I'm sure there will. <laughs> I hope so. I think I'm going to put a bit of life back into this debate. I had a look through some of the uh, some of the times when it's it's blown up, which are interesting in themselves. So we've had princely, precise, queasy, peregrine, all kinds of uh, emendations that people have been very pleased with and felt this absolutely makes sense. I was delighted that Mary Stopes, the uh, contraceptive pioneer, wrote in about Measure for Measure. I mean, can you imagine a play more Mary Stopesy uh, <laughs> than Measure for Measure? But in fact, she just says something about fencing and says frenzy perhaps comes from prene guard which means cover cover yourself which I felt both delighted by and a bit disappointed with <laughs> so that kind of work of of you know what we used to call uh, the crux sallied or sullied or solid for, for Hamlet's flesh this used to be really meat and drink to editorial debates how were you going to deal with these what were you going to do uh, about it and uh, Arden 2 does amend, amends uh, to, uh, to Princely. Arden 3 just prints Prenzy and also isn't really interested, doesn't, doesn't really go there. It seemed to me a real uh, indication of where the energy of editorial labour and editorial debate has shifted, uh, that it's not with these words anymore, although perhaps it may be again in the letters pages, uh, but it's not with amending these, the, these particular difficult words. Um, in some ways, it's a more hands-off textual approach. Uh, there's less intervention in, in the text of Shakespeare by, by modern editors, uh, fewer emendations to even out meter or rhyming or those kinds of things. And Prenzy seemed one good example to sort of hang that on. And so you say that um, the editorial energy of Arjun 3 isn't directed in this kind of scrabbling over words and, you know, taking them and shaking them. Instead, is it, I mean, where is that equivalent energy directed, if not at that sort of thing? It's a really good question. And I think editorial practice has changed 
its emphasis to be more about the reception and the afterlife of Shakespeare's plays than about their, their genesis and their production. So there's less emphasis on what did Shakespeare mean and how can we get back to that? Uh, what, what did, where did Shakespeare get all this from? Although that's still present in the in the Arden Three introductions, but an awful lot more now about theatre in particular, post-Jacobean theatre, but also about a kind of critical history and and a sense of how the play has changed over time. And because Measure for Measure is such a disturbingly sociopolitical play or has been read in that way in lots of different moments, it is a particularly good way actually of seeing the play which doesn't have all that many textual problems. I mean, this isn't like editing Hamlet or, or King Lear for the last of the Ardens. Measure for Measure is not a particularly problematic text to, to work with in terms of its you know, accuracy or whatever. It, it is a problematic text in just about every other way. Can I ask about the, um, when you were saying it was incorporating much more theatre and, and performance history in it now, that would be, would that be particularly helpful here because... Um, because it's one of the problems of it is is what happens at the end, and presumably how you how the production deals with what happens at the end can sort of almost can can affect how you see a lot of the play. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. So the play ends with the Duke proposing twice, in fact, to Isabella, and no reply from Isabella. Clearly, no reply the first time because he he, he mentions it again, but then no scripted reply again. And in some ways, the ending of the play has sort of swapped places with that that crux uh, Prenzy that we talked about a minute ago. Prenzy used to be a very noisy part of the editorial uh, debate about about the text and the ending, a very, very quiet one. Nobody seemed to think that it was possible for Isabella to do other than be delighted uh, that the Duke had asked her uh, to marry him and that therefore her silence was sort of overwhelmed delight or something just didn't just didn't really need investigating and now as we've been saying prenzy is something which just passes in a moment nobody's bothered about that but the silence at the end of the play has become the great sort of noisy space for competing interpretations particularly of course uh, in the theater where the silence has to be meaningful in some way. You know, does Isabella turn away? Does she go towards? Is she trapped as she sometimes has been in, in recent theatre productions? Is there a pullback to the convent that she's left behind? Uh, one production I saw, I remember, brought the mother superior to one side of the stage and the duke to the other and made a kind of, you know, this is a this is the moment of deciding which path her life is going to take. So that has become in some ways, the big question or, or the focus for the questions about the play and theatre and how theatre makers have solved that has been a really a really vital part of the difference between Watson's edition and the edition of Measure for Measure from Arden 2, which says nothing at all about the theatre. That's interesting um, as well, isn't it, in that it leads us to the matter of Thomas Middleton's involvement or not? Well, yes. I mean, readers of the TLS will know that questions about Shakespeare's collaborative authorship are very, very overheated. And the question of whether Thomas Middleton has adapted works by Shakespeare, including perhaps Macbeth, All's Well That Ends Well and Measure for Measure is is one of those instances. Now, the Arden Three series, which has been emerging during sort of in parallel with this kind of debate, has tended not to 
get its hands too dirty in it and has tended to instead give a summary of competing positions and remain uh, agnostic. They've never put another uh, author on the on the title page uh, or on the cover, for instance, uh, and beyond the well-attributed collaborations, say, with John Fletcher. We haven't got an awful lot further, uh, perhaps with Arden Three, but there are some tantalising things about the end of the play that Watson does bring out, I think, interestingly, in this Measure for Measure. He notes that, but fitter time for that, fitter time for that, which is the Duke's remark to say, we'll come back to all this uh, in the last few lines of the play. He notes that that, is, that that phrase doesn't appear anywhere else in Shakespeare, but it appears several times in the works of Thomas Middleton. And with that, he says, he makes a really, really fascinating point, which is, if this last scene is all by Shakespeare, there's no alternative for Isabella but to uh, acquiesce in the Duke's proposal, because Shakespeare's comedies do not allow women any alternative to romantic marriage. That's just that's just how it is. Um, and when you think about it, you can imagine that, you know, you can see that Catherine in Taming of the Shrew or Olivia uh, in Twelfth Night uh, or Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, uh, whether we believe them or not, they all say they don't want to get married and they're all forced to really uh, by the, the way that plot works out. So Watson makes the point that if it's Shakespearean, there's no, there's no hope for Isabella. But if it's Middletonian, then there are options. There are lots of female characters in Middleton's much less romantic comedy vision uh, who end up uh, unmarried uh, at the end of the plays. Um, for example, uh, Moll Cutpurse uh, in The Roaring Girl. Um, uh, and that seems to me a really interesting way in which the questions about authorship really do press on a proper point of critical or literary interpretation because I think we're still at a point where there's been a lot of clever quantitative work done to establish patterns of collaboration, but we don't really know what to do with those in a literary critical way. There's something that you you say about the uh, the Arden series in general, which is that there's always this this tension between engaging with the present moment and reaching for the more enduring relevance that you obviously need a book like this to to have. Can you give us a sense of how this measure for measure uh, navigates that tension? I mean, perhaps comparing it as you do in the piece to uh, Arden too, it seems a very a very telling uh, comparison. I was really struck just looking at the context in which the Arden two measure for measure emerged, seeing it, it, it was amid the protests against the Vietnam War. There had been a debate in Parliament about in the English Parliament to a- abolish the death penalty. Betty Friedens, the feminine mystique, had just been published. You know, there's a there's a whole lot of real world events which seem to chime in with aspects uh, of this play, none of which leave any trace as far as I could see on that edition. Watson's introduction to this Measure for Measure is more explicit about the present. Uh, He does engage with the sort of questions of Me Too and the ideas about consent. I think it was probably absolutely necessary to do that or impossible not to do that if you were writing this introduction perhaps in 2019, uh, thinking about the theatre industry or performances, performance industry as one of the great sites uh, of anger and, and outrage in the Me Too movement. I think it's probably a bit of the introduction which will be quoted back against this edition. 
Shakespeare's play obviously does have resonances with the Me Too moment, but it's quite hard to make it into a uh, a, a happy kind of spokesperson for, for for that, and I think Watson struggles a bit with the contemporary comparison, and in fact he moves quite quickly to say consent uh, in the play is something which applies to men as well as to women, and and while that's absolutely true uh, about the play and an important thing to say about the play, it's slightly cloth-eared in the wider Me Too uh, discussion. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what the responses are to that more topical and therefore a little bit more dangerous reference in the introduction. Uh, and in the meantime, the uh, letters pages are open for for word squabbling and all of that. Oh, um, please. Emma Smith, <laughs> Emma Smith, we will have to leave it there, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on the show, dainty and defiant Charlotte Mew, something else to dazzle and possibly disturb, and Baudelaire at 200. If you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, may I remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we get to Baudelaire's 200th birthday, Lucy and I thought we might draw your eye or your ear to two pieces, one each from this week's paper, a bit like show and tell. Um, Lucy, would you like to go first? Sure thing. Uh, My eye was drawn to a review by Alistair Blanchard, who is a classics professor, of a book called The Invention of Medicine from Homer to Hippocrates by Robin Lane Fox. Robin Lane Fox is a very eminent and erudite uh, classicist and ancient historian. Uh, his book was sort of the um, inspiration for the, uh, you know, the epic film, Alexander, the Oliver Stone film. Mm. So he was the like historical advisor on that. And, and he's also in it being a member of the cavalry on horseback. Is he? Pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would make that demand, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. And I think he's, yeah, and he was, he, I think he's very good, uh, uh, how do you a horseman, horse rider? Uh, he's also a very, very um, brilliant gardener. He does the gardens at New College, Oxford, and has for 40 years. And he's he's brilliant when he writes about it and talks about it. He's very, again, very erudite and thoughtful about it. But this is not about gardening. This is about the invention of medicine. And it's sort of what it starts off by saying that... Um, in, in the earliest days of Greek medicine, the, the communities were very, very grateful to the doctors. Uh, one of the texts he discusses, he says, has a doctor on Cyprus being awarded the equivalent of a decade's wages, substantial land holdings and an orchard. And then he says, no matter um, how heartfelt the banging on a saucepan, it certainly makes some of the modern rewards for doctors and nurses look a little bit cheap. And then he says, well, it's extraordinary when you consider how misplaced it was, because all doctors did in those days was bandage, enemas, <laughs> cupping and bloodletting and trepanning, all of which are incredibly dangerous, apart from the bandaging. But he says that the book is interesting because he has because it has these two prongs. Um, first is the Hippocratic Oath, because it sets out the idea that the patient, it's uh, the, the patient's um, condition and all of that is confidential and that you mustn't abuse your position, which is very important, obviously. And also there's these early texts, early medical texts called the epidemics, which give very detailed case histories of, of disease. Um, and that there are lots and lots of them and they've been referred to over the centuries. An epidemic of epidemics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But these were, if you think about it, they'd be terribly useful, wouldn't they? Even if they were mm. 500 years old, you'd be like, oh, maybe it's that one. Yeah. And so uh, Robin Lane Fox is, is dating them and, 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 and talking about when he thinks they might have come along in the history of medicine. The reviewer says he has a rather romantic view of the, of the Greek world. It's a world populated by renegade aristocrats, free love, and uh, contrary to the opinion of Herodotus, extremely virile horsemen. So do feel free to write in and remind us what Herodotus <laughs> said. 
Um, that said, knowing that all the while a doctor was patiently lying in wait for his opportunity to give everyone an unnecessary enema does take away some of the rosiness, <laughs> says our reviewer. So that's I thought that was a jolly interesting read. Very good. I was reading about Hippocrates recently, actually, about how he diagnosed homesickness or relatedly um, nostalgia in, in displaced populations who were unable to get back to their land of birth, obviously getting quite um, personal oh. here, but they thought it could be, they thought it could be fatal. Oh, no. and so then, <laughs> yeah, so then I'm all right. Good. But then that did take me down um, a bit of a rabbit hole. And I ended up reading about the 17th century Swiss doctor who said that mountain people were particularly susceptible to homesickness, which manifested in like fevers and, and and uh, insomnia and stuff and they were particularly susceptible because extreme barometric changes wreaked havoc on the body's pressure levels so he said the only way to cure it was to return to the homeland obviously mm. or failing that a cure of bright young wine oh lovely <laughs> which i'm personally quite keen on climb a tree or get on a roller coaster because it get very <laughs> very high um, it, that's true isn't it nostalgia was for a place because nostos is a, the place isn't it yeah longing for um, longing for home. Mm. Well, I hope you're all right. I am. I am. I am. I am. Well, because I'm drinking plenty of bright young wine. Bright young wine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's my favourite too. Doctor's orders. Well, my piece was um, Andrew Motions writing about Charlotte Mew, the poet. And it's it's interesting because he starts out by pointing out how it's become quite fashionable. It's always been fashionable, really, in English literature to mock the Georgians, in part because they had the misfortune, really, of coming just before, you know, the bold make it newness of the modernists. So he says it became difficult and certainly unfashionable to credit the Georgians with anything except an almost ridiculous sort of literary failure. And things have changed somewhat uh, with a recentish revival of interest in, uh, in, in Edward Thomas, um, mostly, and Walter de la Mare. And Andrew Motion says, along with these two, the or there have also been attempts to revive the fortunes of, of Charlotte Mew. He was never included in the anthologies um, that those men were, but she drew on their energies, he said. She toughens and adapts them, is how he puts it, and in the process becomes decisively her own person. And she's always been appreciated, Charlotte Mew. Her fans included Thomas Hardy and in her own lifetime, and Penelope Fitzgerald wrote a book about her in the 1980s. But she's always been, he points out, something of a poet's poet. So the reason for this piece now by Andrew Motion is a new biography called This Rare Spirit by Julia Copus. And it's a tragic story, the plot, so to speak, of the life, because it's marked by illness um, and death uh, among those closest to her and her own isolation. And it culminates in a horrendously painful suicide. And yet the writing now is, is reviving the whole, the whole thing in a way. So the, the life that we've got now follows a volume also by Copus, which was published last year of news poems and prose. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with her work, Lucy. No, I was just sitting here feeling very ignorant. Is her work autobiographical? Does it, does the life tie in with it or is it not at all? Well, it does in a sense in that one of her most famous poems is called The Farmer's Bride. Um, and as, as Copus describes it, she points to how this, this most famous poem of hers unravels its own structure. So the idea of, um, of, you know, the Georgians as not being bold and, 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 and taking formal risks is kind of completely denied by, by just this one poem alone. She points to how it unravels its own structure to generate a constant feeling of unpredictability and this, the great, fa uh, great phrase, this, an acoustic anxiety, which obviously resonates with Mew's life as well. A couple of her siblings were 
sent to an asylum um, with schizophrenia um, and there is this sort of multiple voices going on in news in news uh, poetry especially it's a beautiful piece by Andrew Motion about what sounds like a really beautiful loving and deeply researched um, biography really and you're kind of left with this this image of new uh, as described by Andrew Motion you think he captures what I know of her quite well. So Mew is, Mew is a dainty person, he says, less than five foot tall, dressed quaintly, and generally gave the impression of being blown along by the rough winds of life. But given the amount of suffering she endured, always with a kind of stoical pragmatism, it is obvious that one of her most remarkable qualities was strength of will. And we've got a lovely photo of, of Charlotte Mew to illustrate the piece, of course. And yeah, mm. it's it's very moving, I found. Yeah, yeah, that um, sounds, that's very, and, and that of course must be true about the Georgians. It's easy to go, oh, Georgians are boring and the modernists were fascinating, but that exactly. can't, can't be true, can it? Enough Georgian bashing. Yeah, <laughs> enough already. <laughs> Poor them. Enough. <laughs> so there, anyway, um, and from here... It's a light leap to our next topic, Lucy. Well, it's not. It's we're not light years away, as it were, because we are still talking about poets. Um, because two hundred years ago, give or take a week or two, the poet Charles Baudelaire was born. But you'd be forgiven for not knowing or noticing, because there has been surprisingly little celebration or commemoration of this bicentenary, even in France, especially if you compare it to, say, the 150th anniversary of Proust's birth, which will see a lot more publications, events and coverage later this year. We wondered why this was, so we asked the poet and translator Beverly B. Brahic, whose most recent book is Invitation to the Voyage, Selected Poems and Prose of Charles Baudelaire, to write about it for us. She did, beautifully, and we're delighted that she's here to talk about it with us. Beverly, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Um, so why do you think um, Baudelaire is relatively neglected these days? I found that very curious, too. It's uh, true that there's been very little in the French press, at least the press that I follow. And um, I think it's uh, it's a little strange that there haven't been more books or more made of Baudelaire's uh, poetry in this bicentenary year. Perhaps he's just a little too dark for the moment and perhaps just a little bit Victorian. We might think of it as Tennyson's... Uh, comparative impopularity, shall I say, in England at the moment or in Britain at the moment. Do we know if there was any um, fanfare surrounding his his centenary um, or, or is this sort of consistent uh, with, with the way that he's treated? I'm afraid I don't know that at all. That, um, that would have been, what, uh, 1921? So we went around then. <laughs> <laughs> the TLS was. I wonder if the TLS did anything then. <laughs> That's true. That's one we should be able to answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so you say in your piece, Les Fleurs du Mal is one of the most extraordinary collections of poems ever published. No English equivalent leaps to mind. Can you explain to us why it it, 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 it was and is so extraordinary? I think it's as a collection that it's extraordinary, that there should be so many poems in one book, which is basically the only collection of poetry he ever wrote, although he rewrote it and republished it and added things and changed the order of the poems. But mostly it's a collection of relatively short poems. It might be hard to pick out a single poem that sticks out or even a dozen poems that stick out that make it an an extraordinary book. It's the whole collection of poems as a whole 
that is quite unusually good. And it's a question Proust asked, and he said, what about Victor Hugo, who of course was vastly more popular than Baudelaire? And Proust said he could pick out one or two poems of Hugo's that had the quality of all the poems of Baudelaire's. And he might even like that one poem better than any single poem he could point to in Baudelaire's work. But that the book, Les Fleurs du Mal, was really uh, quite exceptional for the quality of the work as a whole, for the number of, say, sonnets that were excellent, masterworks, all of them. And and you say um, as well that he, he really... I mean, his his life crosses those of a lot of other uh, names that we're more familiar with from English lit, uh, literature, like you say, Byron and Wordsworth and Tennyson. But the poems fall between two chairs or even three. Can you um, can you tell us which which ones he falls between? Well, the, he's often spoken of as a romantic. Um, he started writing really at the end of the Romantic period. I wouldn't say he's a Victorian poet, which is the word we would use to describe the, the next development in poetry, in, in English language poetry. He's the beginning of symbolist poetry, which is what we call that period in France. But he also, he, he chafed a little bit at the end of his life and even during his life at the restrictions that classical French poetry imposed in terms of meter and rhyme, the rules were extremely strict. And he looked for ways to escape from that, um, ways that, say, Rambeau not too much later would find. And what he came up with was the prose poem. So he's really considered one of the initiators of the prose poem in French. And that's a modernist development, really. I was going to say, I mean, in, in terms of the falling between multiple stools, um, I mean, that could be a curse or or a blessing in terms of you, you would think that that, that emphasises his relevance in, in more places to more schools. And certainly when I think back to my own studies, it was his work was incredibly resonant. The Painter of Modern Life and, and other essays were primary texts when, when you think about the study of modernism, because he represents an early flowering of much of what would then be picked up again by others like T.S. Eliot and Hope Merleys and so on, I mean, in the first decades of the 1900s. That's true, um, but I think when people look back that way, they tend to stop at Rimbaud. Rimbaud began as a... He, he wrote a lot of rather strict sonnets, Rimbaud, but then he quickly became an extremely experimental writer, followed by Mallarmé, of course, I think the only thing in that direction that we can point to in terms of Baudelaire's poetry is perhaps the synesthesia, that is, the mixing up of different perceptual points of view. But certainly most of his poetry is very strict and impressively strict in terms of its um, of its forms. Baudelaire is, um, by and large, a formalist poet, with the exception of his prose poems. He's a poet of the city, isn't he, um, really? Credited with uh, the word and also sort of inventing the idea of the flaneur who strolls around the city and uh, watches the life of the city. Do you think maybe this idea resonates more than his today? Do you think it resonates now more than, than the actual poetry does? Well, probably, yes. I think I think that's definitely true, although when I 
read his poetry, he's a very anxious flaneur because when I say flaneur, I think of somebody who is rather leisurely, um, has time to wander around the city, whereas Baudelaire is very often tense in his most famous poem uh, on that subject, the, the Passerby. He describes himself as watching this woman whom he would have loved if he could have in, introduced himself to her. And he describes himself as as grotesque, as crispé, as stressed, not daring to get out of his chair and follow her, for instance. While he, he envied Byron, he, I mean, he, he wanted to be a, a dandy, like he thought of Byron, but he didn't have the income. He couldn't support himself in that way. Uh, and he certainly didn't have a very leisurely life of uh, such that he admired um, certain English writers for having. When he's wandering around looking at the city, the, 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 the poetry is, and you, you say this as well, it's, in some ways it's quite difficult, it's quite pitiless. He's portraying the poor, I mean, there is pity there as well, but, it's, but there's no sentimentalising. He's, but he's looking at the poor and the outcast, he's looking at the, the rag and bone men and he's making caricatures of them and of others, but also insisting that beauty can be found everywhere, even or perhaps especially in the sort of detritus of the modern life that he was seeing. Yeah, he can be quite cruel. Uh, he wrote several, he wrote a sequence um, on old women. He used to watch, he would watch old women in the city. And sometimes he softened them up. I think one of them, or perhaps the whole sequence is dedicated to Victor Hugo, and he softened his approach, made it what we would call more humanist. It's said to appeal to Hugo, who was uh, more humane probably, but others of those poems where he describes old women, perhaps old prostitutes, as as staggering along like puppets. Um, it, it's really quite cruel. And similarly with Poor people, he can he's he can be quite cruel too. But he was very interested in the art of caricature, and he talks in particular um, about Goya and says that this is what humanity is. We don't want to soften it. Uh, people aren't angels, and they're a mixture of the angel and the beast. And I myself am double. I'm both. He he associated himself with the grotesques. The half beast, half angel. I was going to ask you about the, the double, the idea of the double, because that also comes up in his writing about art, doesn't it? So art was very important to him and, and the art of his day, but also the idea of the artist, whether it's a painter or a poet or whatever. And he says the artist is always double. What, what did he mean by that? I think he meant a mixture of, of the angelic. He used that. Uh, he was nominally at least uh, a Christian, and it's unclear whether he ever let go of that. And so he uses the term angel, and he uses the term beast for humanity, and he saw them as a mixture of the two. The painting that goes along with the article is uh, Courbet, and of course Courbet is famous for his painting, transgressive painting, The Origin of the World, a close-up of a woman's groin. But also Delacroix, and then Manet, and Manet, of course, is still an artist who's very much visited in, say, the Musée d'Orsay today. 
And if you look at his most famous paintings, for example, the Olympia or the Déjeuner sur l'herbe, they're both set against very dark backgrounds. They're both extremely ambiguous, both about, in the Déjeuner sur l'herbe, the men who are dressed in the painting and the two women who are naked. You can only speculate what he intended by that, and many people have. And the Olympia, who... uh, is being brought a bouquet of flowers by a servant, and she's staring very boldly out of the picture, out of the painting. And the background to that painting is extremely dark too. So I think, as I say in my article there, Baudelaire's backgrounds are often very dark. And I think he was very interested, and he shows that in his writing about art, in the developments of painting in his period. For example, the problem of line, he mentions Ingres, and detail, and there he talks about um, Delacroix. And it's quite extraordinary how well that applies to his own poems, because his poems have line. They have a, a through line from beginning to end, And they also managed to get in an extraordinary amount of descriptive detail without feeling overloaded with detail. And that's a very difficult balance to to keep. And certainly Delacroix is not a poet of line. And Manet perhaps is a little bit more, but still there's a good deal of detail if we think of the still life, for example, in the foreground of the Déjeuner sur l'herbe, which most people have seen and can put in their mind's eye quite easily. But in the end, it's it, it's the music of his poetry, isn't it, that you celebrate, the, the beauty of it. Um, and I think we will end by asking you to give us a couple of his poems in your translation, if you could um, tell us about a couple of those. That would be wonderful. Beauty is a, is a sonnet. I haven't respected the rhyme scheme of it because that's very hard to do when you're translating if you don't want to give up something else. But basically it's his ideal of beauty and it's spoken, it's it's beauty who is speaking. And she is saying you will never ever achieve what you want if what you're looking for in your poetry is beauty. I am fair, O mortals, as a dream of stone, and my breast, which all my lovers batter, lives to inspire in poets a passion as mute and indestructible as matter. I reign unknowable as a sphinx, keep a heart of snow and the whiteness of swans. I hate motion that displaces the lines, and I never laugh and I never weep. Poets before my heroic postures, which seem borrowed from the proudest sculptures, will consume their days in austere studies. And to fascinate each docile lover, I've pure mirrors that make all things fairer. My eyes, my large eyes with their eternal clarities. And... As a second poem, I'd like to read the second part of Autumn Song, which I think is perhaps one of Baudelaire's most beautiful poems. I love the greenish light of your long eyes, gentle beauty, 
but all things are bitter to me today, and neither your fire nor your sighs can match the sun's rays shining on the sea. Yet love me, tender heart. Be a mother, even for a thankless or spiteful son. Be the brief sweetness, mother or lover, of a glorious autumn or setting sun. Brief task, the grave is waiting so avid, but resting my head on your lap, I may savor morning, summer, white and torrid, the last of the season's mild yellow rays. That's wonderful. What better inducement could we have to go back to Baudelaire? Beverly, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Lucy, and thank you, Thea. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Emma Smith and Beverly B. Brahick. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.